I'm Laura London, and this is a special holiday edition of Speaking of Jung. Joining us today for episode 130 is Jungian analyst Dr. Joseph Cambray in Carpentria, California. He began in science, studying quantum mechanics applied to chemical systems, earning a PhD in chemistry from the University of California, Berkeley, followed by two years as a postdoctoral fellow at Stanford. He then spent several years as a visiting professor of chemistry at Osaka University in Japan, where he began practicing Zen meditation. An influx of important and relevant dreams prompted him to begin exploring the field of psychology leading him to Dallas, Texas, where he studied with James Hillman. After earning a master's degree at East Texas State University, he began working as a psychotherapist and training as a Jungian analyst at the C.G. Jung Institute of Boston, where he earned a diploma in analytical psychology in 1991. Dr. Cambray has worked on the faculty of Harvard Medical School's Center for Psychoanalytic Studies at Mass General Hospital's Department of Psychiatry and taught in the Jungian and Archetypal Psychology Specialization at Pacifica Graduate Institute. He continues to teach, is an external examiner of PhD dissertations at the University of Essex in England, and is the liaison for the International Association for Analytical Psychology's developing group in Beijing, China. He has served as president of the Jung Institute of Boston and the IAAP, as provost and vice president of academic affairs and later CEO president of Pacifica, and spent eight years as U.S. editor for the Journal of Analytical Psychology, of which he currently sits on their editorial advisory board. Dr. Cambray's many publications include the book based on his Fay lectures, Synchronicity, Nature and Psyche in an Interconnected Universe, Volume 1 of Research in Analytical Psychology, Applications from Scientific, Historical, and Cross-Cultural Research, and along with his wife, fellow Jungian analyst and our November guest, Linda Carter, Analytical Psychology, Contemporary Perspectives in Jungian Psychology. He has also contributed to volumes three and five of Jung's Red Book for Our Time, as well as The Festdrift for Murray Stein, published earlier this year. His latest research, 21st Century Unconscious, Altered States, Oracles, and Intelligences, was recently published in the book Depth Psychology and Climate Change, edited by Jungian analyst Dr. Dale Mathers. Next year, Dr. Cambray will join Speaking of Jung guests Linda Carter and Marion Dunley at the annual Jung in Ireland seminar, Dreams, Divination, and Synchronicity, Pathways to Healing, from April 12th through the 19th in County Galway. He will be presenting Divination and Oracles, When the Self Speaks, Do We Listen?, Manifestation of the Numinous, and Listening to the Soul, Altered States of Consciousness and Synchronicity. Today's episode is made possible by Temenos Dream, the revolutionary new dream tracking app available for iOS and Android. Now you can record your dreams by speaking into your phone or typing them into the app. Keep your dreams organized, search the built-in symbol dictionary, and have AI illustrate and now interpret your dreams, all within the app. You can help support Speaking of Young simply by downloading the app and creating a free account today 
by clicking on the link in the description box below or on our website, speakingofyoung.com, where you will find links to everything discussed in this episode in the show notes. This video interview is being recorded on Wednesday, December 20th, 2023, through the magic of StreamYard. Hi, Dr. Cambrai. Hello, Laura. Good to be here with you. Thank you. It's great to finally meet you. It's actually been a long time in coming because I've had on as a guest a lot of people who you know quite well, and they all mention you. So you've been on my list for quite some time. We've got George, Beverly, Harold, Roderick, Linda, Paul next month, and Gus. I'm coming for you, Gus, um, who I will have on hopefully in the near future. Dr. Gus Zwick interviewed you for the Journal of Analytical Psychology back in 2021. Uh, It was published in the November 2022 issue. It's really long. Mm -hmm. It's 15 pages. And in it, you say some things to him that are very interesting and I'd like you to talk about, but I should let you say hi first. Hi. (laughs) <laughs> well, hello. Yes, I, 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 I'm aware of your show and I've seen many of the episodes and seen friends on there and uh, I'm, I'm really uh, impressed with the fine work that you've been doing uh, and really reaching out to a larger audience in, in, through this kind of medium. It's really, really valuable. So thank you for your service in that way. Oh, thank you. So if you can get a little closer to your microphone or okay. something, because I was having a little bit of a hard time hearing you. All right. Uh, let's see. I'll try to that's make sure. Everything is, that's yeah, better. that's okay. better. Oh. Okay. And then we'll start back up. Okay. So I don't even know where to start with you, Dr. Cambrai. Your body of work is enormous. And of course, I was made aware of your book titled Synchronicity based on your Faye lectures, but I'm going to step out of the way and let you tell us just a little bit about your background because you studied physics and chemistry and you didn't just dabble in it. You, you graduated with a PhD from Berkeley. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I grew up, um, during the age of Sputnik. And so, um, uh, the scientist as hero was was very much in in the uh, in the culture of the time and uh, captured a lot of my imaginations as a child, and so I pursued that. And fortunately, I had uh, some uh, some natural tendencies and natural skills in in the area, and um, enjoyed uh, really learning about a scientific perspective on the world. It. It carried me through not only high school, but undergraduate and then on to graduate school, where I became more and more interested in the the fundamental workings of nature. Mm. And I, that's still something that that I can see as a, th- a through line. Um, but um, as I as I worked in in on my doctoral work, I actually worked in three areas. I worked in an area of chemical kinetics, doing experimental work. I did some work on uh, transuranium elements, and I did the the primary thing I did was uh, what were uh, types of quantum mechanical calculations applied to small uh, organometallic systems, mm. uh, something called methyl lithium and so forth. And what I began to teach me about were fields. Uh, I think this is really the 
origin of my uh, interest in interactive fields because you know, the electrodynamic fields in molecules, the, the way in which uh, uh, the electrons distribute themselves uh, among the nuclei. Uh, when we did the calculations, it showed some anomalies that weren't expected. The things mm. that were supposed to be more polarized and ionized actually had electron density in the field between. And you can hear the metaphors that become resonant with thinking about an analytic process and the way in which um, the dynamics of the interactive field happens between the people as a co-construction rather than as simply uh, uh, analyst and patient as just two separate individuals. Jung actually spoke about this back in the 30s. He, he was um, responding to James Kirsch's request for some supervision about some transference streams. And he said, yes, those are transference streams. But you know, at the deepest level, we dream not out of ourself or the other, but what lies between. Mm. It's a very powerful statement. Mm -hmm. In the 30s, it's already a, a profoundly intersubjective relational kind of model that's evolving. I, I've read that at a conference or two at, a, at an intersubjective conference and got some surprise when I gave the date for the for the remark because it it was seen as a much later development in mm -hmm. the psychoanalytic world. And it isn't that Jung completely unpacked that by any means. I mean, that's been some of our work. Uh, but it, it, it shows that there's these kind of resonances between the, between psychology and and these kinds of scientific studies. Yeah. Uh, you said, I heard you say, because I've been, uh, you and I have never met, uh, we've never spoken, and that's, uh, right. that's not the case with a lot of my guests, with, with a lot of them. I've either met them, attended their lectures, or spoken with them um, at length, yes. and this is our first meeting. Um, so mm -hmm. I have all of these notes because I've been reading your work, your articles, your books, and watching. There are a lot of your talks available on YouTube, and I will link to all of them in the mm -hmm. show notes Great. for this episode. Yeah, there's some really, your, the talk you gave at the Aranos conference last year. Oh, yes. Yeah, so. Is available on their YouTube channel. And then you gave uh, a talk at Pacifica in 2019 that's up there too. But mm -hmm. I heard you say that physics and psychology might be kindred spirits. Yes. I, I love yes, that. So uh, that's Wolfgang Pauli and, and C.G. Jung when they really formed their partnership. That, that book, Beverly Zabriskie, was uh, involved with the Atom and Archetype. Mm -hmm. Uh, really is a, a wonderful read when you get the correspondence between the two and you see the mutual influence that was going on. Mm -hmm. well, when I asked you to do this episode with me, uh, you mentioned uh, a topic that you you wanted to talk about um, because, as, as I mentioned, a lot of your um, material you have you've spoken about, and this is yes. what new material you you called it yes. the potential noetic qualities of non ordinary states of consciousness. So yeah. would you explain that to us? Well, I'll try to unpack it. Yeah, uh, the the term noetics, as I'm using it there, really comes from William James. Mm -hmm. uh, he was talking in the varieties of religious experience. He has a long discussion about these um, altered states of consciousness that that carry a kind of sense of profound uh, knowing with them, but it's often inarticulate. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it isn't so. It's it borders on what I would call the ineffable, yeah. and um, yet they, it gives the feeling of deep certainty. And 
with the with the re um, emergence of the uh, psychedelics, the especially the notion of the entheogens, mm -hmm. uh, as as a number of them are called, the question comes to mind um, to really do a full mapping of the qualities and kinds of states of consciousness at various different doses, for example, of these, but also in meditation and, and other non-ordinary um, egoic states of mind, that we really could use a, a, a much more profound understanding of our psyches in terms of what is potentially there. Mm -hmm. And this has been expanded into a kind of ecological model the more I've worked, the, the way I can see that the mind is not ensculled it, it really is part of, it's an environmental phenomena that we, um, our engagement with the world, the natural world, the human world, the cultural world, all contribute to the way our minds operate, think, and function. And so the, the larger questions that come up then are, are uh, what kinds of knowledge do we get? We, we are educated into a kind of uh, very uh, rational, objective perspective about the world and that's very powerful and very useful but there's an awful lot that it brackets out that we don't have access to and just by studying things like dreams you immediately start to see well there's other kinds of knowledge and other ways of knowing about the world that can be really beneficial for us and really help us and so the question is is what if we were to really begin a project of understanding those in a, in a much more systemic way to, to really map this out? That's really what the thought is about. Mm -hmm. And you, I mentioned in the introduction that uh, you were teaching in Japan and yes. you were a professor of chemistry. And yes. then you started uh, attending a meditation group. You were doing Zazen, right? Yes. And uh you started having dreams they were yeah. you you called them important and relevant yes and would you tell us a little bit about how that changed the course of your life or or how those sure. dreams guided you yeah um well, I was in Japan. I had, I had been interested in Asian philosophy for a long time. Okay. I actually was, at the time, I was interested in going to China uh, as a first uh, destination, but this was before Nixon had opened it up, mm. or just right at the beginning of that. And mm -hmm. so it really wasn't possible. I traveled a time or two to China, couldn't get very far in. Uh, but Japan was a very open society, and uh, I took this position. I, I was already questioning. I, I was already starting to have some thoughts about whether I wanted an academic career in the sciences because of the kind of lifestyle that that engendered, which was mostly um, a, a very, very long days uh, in the lab and very little human contact. And mm. I was beginning by that point, by the time I'd finished postdocing, realizing there was something more that I wanted in my life. And so that's mm. that's another aspect of it the travels to Japan. But while I was there, um, I, Kyoto was about a 45 minute train ride away, not far at all. And I found a bilingual group um, because I was still learning a bit of basic Japanese at that time and um, began doing uh, a form of Soto Zen, the Zazen sitting quietly. Um, and very quickly it became psychoactive. I mean, the most obvious manifestation were a series of really interesting dreams um, where I was finding new rooms in the house that I was living in and they 
they had both a, a modern quality and an ancient Japanese quality with a kind of hearth in the center of the room with a fire and so forth. And um, I could see that this was really having a major impact on uh, how I was experiencing myself in the world. I talked to the Zen teachers about it and they said, oh yeah, these things happen, but don't worry about it, it'll go away. Mm. And, I, and I said, well, you know, yes, I, I mean, I can see that that might be an ultimate goal, but I am not ready to just ignore these without some kind of reflection. And they really weren't interested in helping in that process. Right. So I started, I went to the library at the university and found Jung. It was mostly in German, unfortunately, but mm. I still had enough German I could make my way mm. through. But I started reading him seriously and realized that it held some major keys. And I, I thought, I probably need to really pursue this. And by the time I finished that um, that fellowship and I returned to the U.S., I decided I was going to um, an attempt to shift in in, in career focus. Mm-hmm. And that uh, I first studied biopsychology and realized it was not that different from doing chemistry. Ah, uh, right. And so I thought, well, that's not really satisfying my need. And so then I I began to to look into pursuing things in in um, uh, depth psychological direction. And I had the good fortune. I was living uh, up in uh, uh, Northern California um, in a little town near Chico, mm. a little town called Paradise. And at the university there, where I actually, I joined the faculty for a while as a chemist, but I developed a friendship with um, the head of the religious studies department who had just come back from Zurich man named uh, Charlie Winquest, and he and I began a, a, a close friendship, which led into my trans- transitioning to, to going to Dallas and to uh, entering the Jungian world. Was he training in Zurich? No, he was a scholar okay. who was interested. He was uh, the president of the American Academy of Religious Studies. Uh, ah, okay. PARS, and and he he had a strong philosophical interest. Actually, he was always trying to convince me to go into philosophy. Mm. Yeah, you know, you don't need to be an analyst; you become a professional philosopher. Uh-huh. Like, well, that's right for you, but it's not right for me. Yeah. No, I'm always interested in how analysts discovered yeah. Jung, and it's usually a book, right? Because yeah. where else are you going to find out? about Jung, especially back before yep. the internet, uh, or somebody who, who another, another analyst actually, uh, right? Somebody yep. who trained. So I, I always like to hear uh, that story. And I'm also curious, I wanna make sure to ask you this, your Fay lectures on synchronicity, and then that book, nice. that was huge. So what, how did you, choose that topic to or or did did you do that work and then they asked you to do a lecture series on synchronicity or how did that work well the fey lecture people were really quite generous and open about Mm -hmm. me choosing a topic excuse me what had happened is this was uh in the in the lead up to this i had been um working as a, a newly um and analyst, and I was dealing a lot with trauma, a lot of uh, early developmental trauma in my clinical practice. And I started to have a number of synchronistic experiences around that. One in particular um, that I've, I've used, I would say it's, it's my, um, you know, uh, 
ju- uh, beetle jewelry story, you know, the one that Jung yes. produces the, yeah. The one for me was the, the case in which um, a severely traumatized client and I were working and I was going to be away for uh, about 10 days. And in the past I had had to hospitalize this person mm-hmm. uh, at her own um insistence as well because things became very disorganized when the analytic frame wasn't there and so um after a considerable period of work she asked if we could um have a phone call while i was away and because she felt that if that could serve as a bridge to help her from having to go in the hospital Mm. and so it took some work to to really think that through because it's Formally, it's a uh, disruption of the frame, but in talking with some um, trauma experts about this, th- they felt that it's the kind of request that needs to be taken seriously and that it had a potential healing effect. So I, I agreed to it. And what happened is I called at the s- set time, and as soon as it rang once, and she was on the line and said, Are you in Germany? And I, you know, it's nowhere near. I was in the Caribbean. And I said, no, but can you tell me why? Um, and she said, I had a dream last night. You were in the Black Forest and I couldn't find you. I sort of rushed. And, and I realized, oh, you know, there's a kind of sense of, of really feeling uh, lost and without support and help. And so what I did was marshal the resources I could for her and help take her through uh, a kind of reorientation towards what was happening in her life at the moment. And that really helped settle things. In fact, it was successful enough that she never needed to be hospitalized again. That was the end of, of that um, period. What was the, the surprise was the next day, uh, I was in my second day of uh, learning to go scuba diving. Mm-hmm. And the dive master was very kindly and said, you know, you got the, the basic stuff here. Why don't you come out this afternoon on a dive? So I agreed. And um, this is my, my first open water dive. So we're about... 45 minutes from the dock, we're out on, on the open water, and he called all the divers around and said, let me tell you about today's dive site. It's called the Black Forest. Mm. And, and so I thought, oh, well, that's, a, that's an interesting <laughs> coincidence. Um, and, you know, it, it took a little bit of thought and reflection about, you know, am I in danger here? Am I going to get lost? And was that a precognitive dream that I should attend to that the patient mm. had? I mean, I ultimately ultimately felt that I had enough trust in the, the dive master and he was going to be my dive buddy for that particular dream or for that particular dive. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, it was, of course, a, almost a life-changing event because black, uh, the black forest meant black coral. This was on a coral reef at 30 to 60 feet below the surface, and it was just exquisite. It was mm-hmm. really extraordinary, all the color, the, the, um, the natural life down there. And so when I came back on board, I, I really sat down and thought, of what, what's just happened here? You know, there's a black forest, and both myself and the client are in a black forest, but we're experiencing it from very different vertices. And how do we understand now? And that took me into a very long study of, uh, of Jung's essay and really trying to take it apart and see what he was trying to get at. With this, there, there was a lot of material that, of course, wasn't available at that time, like the Red Book and so forth. Mm, um, yeah. But from his published works, I could began to see what his arguments were, where their strengths and weaknesses were, and um, 
it fortunately was at that moment in time when the Santa Fe Institute uh, was really beginning to produce a lot of work. And this is the work on complexity, complex adaptive systems, emergence. And that kind of science made a lot of sense to me, holistic systems. And I could see how you could take synchronistic experiences and see them as a, a kind of a subset of complex adaptive system reactions as a kind of an emergent uh, form. And so that really led me on the path that, that got me to that, uh, to deliver the Fay lectures in the form that they're in. Mm -hmm. So for the listeners who may not be familiar, that right. example you just gave us is an example of a synchronicity. And yeah. when I first started this podcast, I was, I, uh, I was just so frustrated with all of the information I was seeing out there about synchronicity, how that term was being misused. And I was trying to get a handle on it. And um, it's not an easy thing to, to understand. And different guests have had different definitions. And that example you just gave, I heard you tell that story. And I, I neglected to mention this earlier. I've mentioned this on the podcast many times. The roundtable discussions you were involved in with Beverly Zabriskie for the Helix Center back in 2014. There are two of them and they are phenomenal. There's a whole round table of you guys. Um, yeah, 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 I remember. Uh, and I will provide links in the show notes to those videos. But when, when I heard you tell that story that you just told, it took my breath away. I gasped. I was so moved by it and I was so startled um, by that. And so I would like for you to tell us um, how the, uh, my mind is racing, how that is a synchronicity and some other things, you know, there are, I'll say this, there are a lot of people out there talking about synchronicity who have no idea what they're talking about. And that's why I read that really long bio of yours. Yes. Uh, so, so I'd like for you to tell us how that is a synchronicity and why that is a synchronicity. And also I just want to mention, I experienced a lot of synchronicities when I was, um, when I was preparing for this episode and just two months ago, I was in Santa Fe and I drove by the Santa Fe Institute and I thought, I wonder what they're doing now. I wonder what's going on in there. <laughs> and then, um, and then in preparing for this episode, I've heard you mention it. Yeah. There's actually uh, a Jungian analyst, Jacqueline West, mm -hmm. who's married uh, to one of the researchers there at the, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, Jeffrey. so what's his name? Jeffrey. Uh, West, yeah, and he published a recent book uh, called I think it's called Scale. It's a he's very knowledgeable about this whole area. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, oh, I, I wonder if maybe he'll talk to us about yeah, he might. that. Yeah, you can ask. So, would you tell us how that's a synchronicity and and use that as an example, maybe to sort of define yeah. it for the listeners? Well, defining synchronicity is is really complex I and. Mean, I'm not sure that it's the best framing. I think part of the confusion that people feel is the idea of synchronous, that is happening at the same time. And it isn't, as my example shows, it isn't always synchronous in this normal sense of time. There was something active in the field that both of us were engaged in. And the coincidence was, of course, the Black Forest. 
that was the the object of coincidence that uh, and the shock that uh, how could her dream have put me into a place that I didn't even know about? I hadn't even heard of it at, mm-hmm. at the time that we had that. <clears throat> and so the the meaning, of course, was uh, multi-layered in terms of not only did it cause me to really reflect on my relationship with that client in a new way, in a deeper way. I, I saw levels of connectivity in the transference, counter-transference field that I hadn't seen before at the level of the coincidence. But it's also, remember, my first dive in open water. So mm-hmm. it's, it's like an immersion into the, uh, another aspect of the unconscious. If you took the story and read it as a dream, you'd see that there's a kind of symbolic dimension to that. Yeah. And that wasn't lost on the unconscious of the patient because um, I never revealed uh, during the course of our work what had happened. But, and there were good reasons I hadn't, I didn't do that I and mean, good clinical reasons, but nevertheless, uh, the unconscious field was such that she picked this up about six months, three to six months after that experience she had a series of dreams in, in the midst of our work where she was in, found herself in the water in the dream, sort of floundering and coming near to drowning. And I would show up and do what's called buddy breathing. That is, you take your regulator, you take a breath, and if your partner is in difficulty, you hand them the regulator, let them breathe, and you go back and forth. And that way there you can get to the surface and get to safety. And her unconscious clearly understood uh, what had been happening. And so there was a kind of intuitive seeing around the corners here, uh, rather extraordinary in, in terms of this person's case, uh, which again pointed out the way that the psyche was seeing the two of us. We were in something together. And I think that's very much a part of the synchronistic experience. <clears throat> it is a field. It is a field in which something is emergent. That is, it's a holistic aspect of the field in which the people or the person and the object are both um, active uh, ingredients to the, the construction of the overall uh, experience. And, and, and that's where a complex system becomes, you know, there's sort of multiple components and they interact and they have the capacity to spontaneously self-organize and create an emergent form. And so our dream work and the kind of uh, emotional anxieties that were there were part of what was in the field and what emerged was the image of the black forest. And that was the synchronistic um, core of the experience. And you can find this when you go start looking at synchronicities, um, they, they bear these kinds of resemblance, bear resemblance to this holistic emergent form. That's the thing that seems to be um, a common denominator across all of them. Um, and I think that you can make a very good argument that, that there are synchronicities at multiple different levels of scale. Uh, in other words, I think you could look at the intensity of, free, of synchronicities uh, versus their frequency and see a correlation. This is what the Richter scale is, you know, for earthquakes, the intensity of the earthquakes and the frequency. So you don't have very many 9.5s on the Richter. Right. Um, but you have lots and lots of small mm. ones. This is what's called, a, you develop what's called the mathematics of power law. And, um, I won't go through the, the physics and math of this, but the idea is that there's a correlation. And I think the emotional intensity um, can be mapped to the frequency of these things. So we have a lot of, I think, 
we're not well trained because our education system doesn't uh, alert us to this. But I think there are a lot of these kind of low level synchronistic phenomena that happen in our daily life. You think of somebody and then what do you know, the phone rings and there they are, uh, is, is a more common kind of thing. And they, some people even argue, and C.A. Meyer would, said this to Jung, and Jung was really um, struggling with this. He thought the mind-body relationship might have a synchronistic dimension to it. Mm-hmm. And if that if that's accurate, and it may be that the mind is emergent out of the body in in the environment, uh, which I think is a, a you know if you look at uh, theory of mind and contemporary philosophy, this is not um, not unheard of. In fact, it's one of the more effective models. And so mm-hmm. go ahead. So you say that it is emergent, and well, when I hear people talk about synchronicity they think that it's magical and mm-hmm. that that it needs to be paid attention to because there's a message in it i tended to think of synchronicity as this is the way the world works that psyche and matter are not separate one is a reflection of the other that's my thing so Yes. So I, I lost my train of thought just now, but um, I want to go back to a word sure. you use used, which was interconnected. Yes. And I also am going to circle back to that interview you did with Dr. Zwick. I know. And in it, you said to him, the archetypal patterns behind culture may be shifting. I think we're moving to a post-heroic age. This is this is an age where we're attending to the networks, to the interconnectedness between everybody. Yeah. Would you say a little bit more about that? Was fascinating. Yeah, there, yeah, there, there are multiple ways to to look at that. I'll pick up a couple of threads and see which ones are most um, most useful. <clears throat> I mean, part of that is coming out of synchronicity, seeing that there are connections that are there that have been invisible, that, you know, like with the patient. And I think you're absolutely correct. It's a cosmological argument. Uh, I've I've spent a lot of time in the last few years rereading the Red Book and so forth and looking at the imagery, and it's Mm -hmm. filled with cosmic egg pictures. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I most recently, there's a new book that Leslie Sawin is putting out about times of uncertainty, and I wrote an article there about Um, individuation in the 21st century. And what I'm getting at is I looked at Jung's own emotional development throughout the Red Book. And what struck me in our more recent reading was, why did he he not stop after his Liverpool dream? This is the dream in which he sees the golden flower on the island. And he wakes up in a state of almost euphoria, euphoria, and claiming that this, he had a realization of the self through this image, that this symbolic mandala-like image really gave him that. And if that's the goal of individuation, you might say, well, okay, isn't that a stopping place? Yeah. But he, but he doesn't. And he doesn't really begin the end. The beginning of the end, he makes very clear, is when he's working on this uh, mandala himself, and he receives the secret of the golden flower from Richard Wilhelm, who's in China. He's in Tsingdao, China where I just was actually uh-huh. a week or two ago. And um, 
Jung is stunned by that because there's a um, frontispiece along with the with the manuscript. It's a picture of the Vajra Mandala, and he held it up against his um, the mandala. He was right exactly at that point in the middle of it, and, and found a number of really powerful parallels. And this really moved him in a very deep way. Um, and in fact, a couple of months later, in November of 1928. He first uses the term that leads to synchronicity in a seminar, private seminar, and he's asked about all of these coincidences happening <clears throat> in the class. And he says, well, in the West, we think of cause and effect, but in the East, they look at what's happening at the same time, things that are, you know, sort of a horizontal move. <clears throat> and it's very clear that this is coming out of his experience of that and so he's had this dream of a golden flower now he's had the realization with what was clearly a synchronistic experience for him yeah the receipt of that at just that moment and that's his exit he says he this is what took him to alchemy <clears throat> and so yes it did take him to alchemy not chinese alchemy because he wasn't that familiar with it but he saw the resonance between alchemy and and the psychological processes he was undergoing now, what it caused him to do then was to open up a whole new field for himself in, in the study of alchemy. At the same time, I think it also solved his chief dilemma in entering the Red Book. That is when he had those visions, he felt he could be doing a schizophrenia, as yeah. he said. And, and then in August of 1914, World War I breaks out, and it looks like prophecy. And he's not really very happy with either one of those. Mm -hmm. Am I going crazy? Am I a prophet? What, what's happening? Yeah. Synchronicity becomes a, a pathway out. It becomes a mm -hmm. third. It, it's something about the fundamental nature of reality. And then as he writes the essay, he's, he says something that I, I have always been startled by. He says, well, in moments of synchronicity, it's as if space and time collapse. They go to essentially zero, and the laws of physics um, are, are no longer in advance well he was he's writing this in the late 40s this is yeah. exactly when the big bang theory is being articulated mm. he couldn't be clearer in a way the saying um i'm arguing for a, another element in our cosmogony that hasn't been there before mm. the idea of what i would call pattern formation at the origins of the universe so the synchronicity if it's put in at that level as the early pattern formation before the laws of physics even emerge then it is profoundly universal and it's profoundly part of the interconnected world. That's, that's one line of thought. And then the other line of thought is the, since, since the 2000s, the beginning of this century, our understanding of ecology through the use of complex systems has really expanded exponentially. And in particular, the work uh, on understanding, say, the, uh, the underground networks that hold forests together uh, in particular, I'm thinking of the work of Suzanne Samard. She's a forest botanist in British Columbia, and she's just done some extraordinary work. Her, she's got an auto-ethnographic uh, book out there called Finding the Mother Tree. A couple of years ago, she published this, which is her history of her development uh, as a scientist, but also linked very closely with the, with the uh, understanding of forests. She's the person, even before, more than Peter Wolleben, who's done the basic research to show how interconnected um, the forests are through the what are called mycorrhizal networks. These are the fungi that, that put their roots into the tree roots, and they serve as a kind of communication system. 
Uh, and the extent of that is is mind-boggling when you really look at these things. I mean, I can go into the details, but you get the picture, I think. Yeah, and another synchronicity for me, or maybe it isn't synchronicity. I'm 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 open to is this synchronicity or is this not? Well, but um, yeah. yeah, so there's a television series uh, that aired in the 1990s called Northern Exposure. Oh, and yes. I think it was written by some Jungians. Uh, and actually, they bring up Jung a lot. And the DJ, uh, he reads from he reads from the collected works and, and various other books by Jung. Yeah, yeah. But there is an episode in season six, and we started watching it from the beginning again, because now it is mm. finally available to stream online. It's available from Amazon Prime Video, and it wasn't before. Mm. And there is an episode... <clears throat> excuse me, in, in season six called The Giant Mushroom. And I don't want to give it away, but <laughs> the, the main character, Joel, is having a conversation with Maggie, who is kind of upset that he left. This, this is yeah. the main character of the show. He leaves, and this is the final season. And he tells her, you know, I never left you. We're, I have chills. We're, we're all connected. Like, he, and he talks about oh. the honey mushroom that is, yes. I, I have it somewhere here in my notes, the honey mushroom um, that is, mm. I don't know, maybe you have, you know what I'm talking about here, about yes. how it, the, it takes up acres and acres and acres, and it's really one organism yeah, with these teeny tiny mushrooms that pop, pop up. Yeah, the fungi, yes. Yeah. So, uh, and then I heard you talk about that and in, in, in some of your lectures um, yeah. mentioned that. So here it is, the giant mushroom. Uh, the honey mushrooms are outcroppings of the same fungus. They run underground for a minimum of 35 square miles, and it's the largest living organism in the world. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the stuff we're talking about. Yeah. yeah and, and the author of that show's mother was a Jungian analyst. I knew her. <laughs> oh really yeah <laughs> okay well you have to tell me about that off air okay. okay another thing that you mentioned to dr zwick in in uh, his interview of you uh you mentioned reconsidering individuation and you brought that up earlier uh you yes. say that reconsidering individuation is another area i hope to explore more the more we contextualize the psyche in an ecological framework, yeah, the question yeah. of what constitutes individuation is going to change. We are embedded in the world and our changes inextricably bring us up against everything else. Yes, yeah, no, that's, I, I would stand by that statement. Yeah, the, the original individuation model is more uh, of a kind of hero's journey, you know, that Joseph Campbell articulated and and Jung endorsed in a lot of ways. But again, this is why I went back and reread the Red Book very carefully mm -hmm. along this, because I think his actual experience, he didn't articulate this. So we just have the raw data from, from what he produced in the Red Book. He doesn't say in his models of individuation, he makes some indications that the ultimate part of the hero's journey is the return to the community and the world. Right. And you, you've got things like the ox herding pictures that are uh, implied there. And of course, Murray Stein wrote a, wrote a book basically around those. Um, 
where the the hero at the end is coming the zen hero is coming back to town and everything's blossoming around mm-hmm. around him um, or her um, and it's this later part of things where uh, the the hero's story of fighting the dragon and uh, achieving individuality um, is a very important psychological development. But I think we're getting to a place where that myth itself, which was part of our scientific myth, uh, our hero genius, you know, the Isaac Newtons, the, the Einsteins, these were kind of our cultural heroes that we were putting out that are part of that myth. Um, we've reached a place where uh, it's to our detriment not to see all of the connectedness underneath. You know, the, if you even take a field like um, the history of science and look at the biographies since about 1990, we're finding more and more discussion of all of the relational field that these people were in, who they were connected to, how mm-hmm. these networks worked. And so the idea that of the single genius producing these wonderful things is a kind of skewed vision. It doesn't mean that those people didn't have a brilliance and, and didn't produce really remarkable things, but the contextual world was really very much a part of it. And I think as we move further and further into the 21st century, this inter- level of interconnectedness is really showing up. I mean, mm-hmm. there, there's research from the Chan Center at Harvard around COVID. Um, and, you know, I know this is, it's still controversial in many ways, but I think the model that they've been evolving there is is really worth considering. Their, their argument is that uh, COVID's an opportunistic infection due to global warming. And the way the argument works is as you heat the planet up, animals, especially in the tropics, the the conditions become unbearable for them. So they migrate away from the heat and it moves them up into different latitudes where they now come into contact with migrating birds, bats, and the like, who they've never been in contact Mm -hmm. with before. And of course, from a viral perspective, that's the opportunity that's sought to jump from one species to another on these new encounters because immune systems are not prepared for that. Mm-hmm. And so viruses can can really flourish under those conditions. Then these these birds migrate back up and they're caught, uh, you know, and taken to wet markets and so forth. And then, boom, we've got ourselves a, a pandemic. Uh, but the model is that, that we're driving it. And if that's mm-hmm. accurate, it suggests that if we don't hear the feedback, if we don't get the receive the message from the planet, we're going to probably produce more of this. Uh, that we're in a feedback loop. It isn't. It isn't the planet mm. taking revenge on humans. I don't think it's that reductive. But but I do think we're also setting the conditions for this. And um, there's a, another level of consciousness we need to evolve. I think this is one of the altered states of consciousness we need. That we pick back up from some of the indigenous peoples where they had more of a sense. They had a less sharply focused consciousness, more diffuse, but it was much more able to engage the environment, the, the ecological dimensions. You know, at Pacifica, we in 2017, we had this huge fire, the Thomas fires that was followed a month later by these, these terrible rains and, and the flooding, and, you know, wiped out 101 for several months. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really stunned at how our campuses were, were not... Um, particularly injured, even though some of our neighbors suffered damage. And then I talked to some of the Chumash elders that we have 
involved with Pacifica. And they said, you know, these were sacred lands for the, for the mm -hmm. original peoples. And I began to then realize there was an ecological eye that could see the, the look at the arroyos, see the, the flow patterns ah. and so forth. And that these, these were sacred because they had this protected quality about them. Mm. There was a deep knowledge and a wisdom that was there. And I think we need to reincorporate that. That's why I'm interested in what I call re-enchantment. That, that's the enchanted world of the past. We've now had a scientific world that's led us to disenchantment. And I think we need to survive. We're going to have to find a pathway towards re-enchantment. Not going back and just ignoring the science we have, but but beginning to get into a larger worldview that really allows the world to be more animate, uh, to, to really have a way that we, the ecology of the world and our psyches are in communication. Yes, and I did do an episode with Professor Maine, Roderick Maine, oh, right. uh, yeah. about his new book on reenchantment. Yes. Yes, and I saw that you wrote a book review that was Absolutely. recently published in the Journal of Analytical Psychology, and I'll provide a link to that in the show notes. So would you just, as we're coming toward the end of the episode, um, but we still have time, uh, okay, sure. what, what would you say we are steps that we can take to re-enchant our world? Yeah, that's... Uh, you couldn't ask me a more pertinent question. I, that's what I've been working on. I'm going. I'm in the midst of trying to write a book on the topic, and I've been doing more of this in my workshops. So the first step that uh, took me on that way was to rekindle a sense of wonder, mm -hmm. and that's what I, because we've lost that, you know. Yeah. And then from wonder, it's another step towards awe, and that's getting some, you know, press. Uh, Dr. Keltner at uh, UC Berkeley just published a book on awe. Uh, you know, it's a, a sort of a popular book and it's coming back in and Casement, who you've had on several times, has been working on the sublime, uh, which is a, the experience of awe and, and beauty with a, with a bit of terror that's in there. It's like these late 18th, early 19th century paintings you can see where people are in the Alps and there's magnificent views and yet you sense that there's precipitous drops at every turn and that you you feel the sense of awe and wonder in that. And recultivating those as a part of our daily experience seems to me an important thing. And then uh, the next step that I, I'd like to take in that direction is, is how to really uh, begin a kind of an active imagination or more in the language I would use, reveries with nature. Mm. You know, I've come to understand in working with traumatized people that, the reverie that might be activated in the analyst has much more meaning than has been traditionally been given credit for. Hmm. And so how to use that in a disciplined way. And as I've done that over the years, I've now started to say, but what about reveries with nature? Yeah. What about when we are out walking in nature? What if we begin to let our minds open to whatever images are in the field? What do we pick up? And how do we begin to to do that in a disciplined way. I think that may provide some guidance for the pathways towards reenchantment. So that's mm. that's an area of active interest and research for me right now. Mm. It's interesting you mentioned that because uh, I live here in Chicago and you know it's December, so it's kind of gloomy oh, and yes. cold, yes. And yesterday afternoon, because the sun sets here before four thirty now, 
I looked out the window and I looked toward the West and I have never, I've lived here for almost 20 years. I have never seen the sky magenta, hot pink and lavender. And I was, yeah, I, I mean, awe and wonder and, and nature and all of those things. And I yeah. realized it made me realize how I haven't, I don't feel those things a lot anymore. That's right. Um, you know? So I want yeah. to talk about your um, upcoming trip to Ireland, which right. they do this every year, right? In, in the spring, yes. this Jung yes. in Ireland seminar. Yeah. And I was so taken by, I went to their website and I saw the titles of your talks. And what, what the first one listed is divination and oracles. When the self speaks, do we listen? Yeah. I love it. And I would like to hear more. And would you just give us a brief synopsis of that? Sure. I, you know, this is something that uh, came to my attention in about 2018-19. Peter Strzok, he's a classicist, published a book, Divination and Human Nature. And uh, it was a very cogent and intelligent book. And then I subsequently found that he's spoken at a number of young institutes. Um, And he talks about a surplus of knowledge, about the way oracles speak, um, that, that there are multiple levels of meaning. Very much along a symbolic line. And this led me into uh, exploring what was happening in the field. And it turns out there are a whole group of classicists who are re-examining the oracular traditions in the West, particularly like the Pythia at Delphi, the priestess of Apollo, who would enter into an altered state of consciousness and then give pronouncements. And I think the thing that was really most stunning about that was the socio-political implications. This is a, the, particularly the work of a man named Stefan Maul, M-A-U-L. He's German, but he's been translated at least in part into English. And what he's been looking at is how these women who were in the sort of uh, second half of life, for sure, they, they'd finished having children and so forth. They were older. They weren't particularly educated in a classical sense. You know, they didn't have a formal education. Mm-hmm. But they could enter these states. They had a real capacity for this and to speak out of them. And that the implications were that they stabilized the politics of the Mediterranean basin for about 2,000 years, mm-hmm. from 1400 BC to about 400 AD or wow. CE. And they're really asking the question, what, what's going on here? Right. That, that this group of women... Uh, who, without any formal authority, they're they're authorized by the God that they speak, they allow to speak through them. But they have an enormous effect on the entire region and do something that uh, creates the kind of conditions for prosperity and growth. And uh, this is an unacknowledged, unrecognized source. And I thought, you know, that probably says something about oracular traditions more generally, that we need to understand what those states of mind are and what what can be conveyed through those what the kind of perceptual depths that that are there what what are people picking up so it's been a kind of exploration of that and of course i spent a lot of time in china so i in fact was just at a conference on the I Ching. we were looking oh, okay. at hexagram 61 and it was about heartfelt influence uh, and it was the the image of the lake on the top of the mountain and the relationship between them 
-hmm. And I found it really powerful to uh, look at that uh, alternative divination system and the kinds of worldviews that begin to emerge out of a, a deep dive into that. And so how to maybe do some cross comparison across cultures and see and perhaps link it with with the growth of the interest in entheogens now in the West. Uh, and what are we doing? What what might be their deeper purpose? Uh, are they beginning to help us see into our relationship with nature and relationship with the world in a way to help bring that re-enchanted feeling back? For the listeners, would would you tell us what an entheogen is? Yeah, it, yeah, it's a it's not my term, of course. It it is one of the alternative ways of describing psychedelics from an experiential perspective. That is, it, it's a God creating, it creates the feeling of contact with the numinous. And Theo, you know, Theo being uh, the Greek for God, Gen being like uh, generating. So it's a, a, an experience of generating a godlike feeling, not becoming godlike, but, right. but experiencing an encounter with. I would like to ask you, as a Jungian analyst, what your thoughts are on using a substance, a medicine, a drug to achieve a certain state of consciousness. And as a meditator, um, I was a meditator. I did practice TM for many years. But so I... Sure. These are these are complicated issues. Very complicated. Yes, and there are opinions always, but I'm interested in yours and and what you think. Well, you know, this was absolutely central to the conference we just held at Pacifica. After the formal conference ended, everybody stayed and we broke into groups deliberately to talk about whether we should think about protocols for use and universally we decided it's too soon we just okay. don't know enough about this yeah. we don't know enough about the dosing there are many different agents they have different effects uh, there was a lot of very knowledgeable people present yeah. and some who were very skilled at the use of them but i didn't feel like these were things one of the things we we really did discuss is what is its relationship between these the use of these kind of things and, and guiding those kind of experiences and the analytic process. Yeah. And for me, I I see them as different areas. And you there are several different possibilities. You could learn to be trained in both of them, but then you have some interesting questions about frame issues, about how you move from one to the other. Or do you work, um, probably my own predilection is to work more as a team. Mm -hmm. That I, I, I'm very happy to work in, with a group of people who have expertise in different areas and work in a coordinated way so that someone can, who's really expert at, at say guiding may be able to do that. But I think we're, it's still the wild west. We're still at very early days and I, I can't just endorse going out and doing that um, as a, as a kind of pathway. I think the dangers of spiritual bypass and so forth are, are very, very relevant to those kind of problems. So um, I, I would say it's too soon to try to make any kind of decision, but let's do more research. Let's really begin to explore this more before we start trying to advise ourselves or others about what we should do with this. The thing that concerns me about 
taking, having to take no. anything. I mean, sure. even, even the caffeine that I'm drinking is that it wears off. It's not yeah. a permanent fix. It's not a permanent change. It wears right. off and then you need more. And that's my concern yeah. about taking, injecting, swallowing anything. Right. Yeah. It's a question of the robustness of the, of the uh, experience. You know, my wife, Linda Carter, uh, gave a paper at this on, on ketamine use yeah. in, a, in conjunction with analysis. And it was very clear in the kind of results that they've gotten. And it's not just theirs or a number of other people at like at MGH, you know, Harvard Medical, who are looking at these kind of things. And it really, you need the combination of if you're going to use that kind of medicine to do psychotherapy so that um, you can get something more resilient. You're, you're left in a state that may be more open to possibilities, but if that isn't seized and worked on, then yeah. um, you're right. It just becomes a cycling over and over and over. Yeah. And there may be deleterious effects for long-term use that is counterindicated. Right. Uh, I'd, I'd be very cautious about that. And side effects too. Yes, absolutely. Well, look at the Matthew Perry story, sadly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know it's complicated, but nevertheless, cannabis right. is pretty significantly involved in that. Right. I mean, I'm also interested, for example, you know, because I've done so much work in China. Yeah. How, how you translate this kind of psychology and its methodologies and everything else um, across cultures because the same stories are not in, inherent in the culture. Right. You know, I, I've, I did a course for some Chinese on the black book to the red book, you know, the kind of, and, and the more I looked at it, the more I realized, well, you need to, you need to understand, for example, biblical history fairly well to follow he, he doesn't give you footnotes that tell you this is a reference to this story or that story. Um, and if you're coming from a culture where that isn't inherently built in, um, it, it can be rather mystifying as to what's going on and why is he talking about that. So the questions for me then are, um, are this, is the structure of the psyche identical across mm. different cultures, different languages? I don't think so. I, you know, it's not that we can't all recognize our humanity, mm -hmm. but the way it, there was some wonderful experiments that were done, oh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, I believe. Um, I, I think John Hopkins and, and Rutgers were involved. They they did some, some ethicists, got together with some neuroscientists. And what they did was they put people in fMRI machines to see what gets lit up and they asked them ethical questions. Mm. You know, you're, you're give you a dilemma where you've got to make a choice, and it's yeah. you know it's messy, and there there's an ethical correct answer, but it's not easy or simple. And what they did is they they put people in from multiple different cultures, and the, what was fascinating was the answers that they ultimately came up with were fairly uniform. That is, humans are fundamentally ethical. They 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 try to solve these things to reach what they feel is an ethical answer. But the pathways in the brain were quite different. Were quite different? The way, yeah. The way yeah. in different areas of the brain lit up were not the same across cultures. Uh, and so, therefore, the way in which we solve problems, the way in which we conceive the world is not identical. And 
what are the psychological implications? What does it mean to do psychotherapy then, if that's the case? For example, I'll give you a real quick example. I yeah. have a client from a European country that I didn't speak the language. And um, the person came to me because they wanted Jungian analysis and to talk about dreams. But I was having a terrible time entering their dreams. And finally, it dawned on me after a while. Uh. I said, what language do you dream in? They told me, oh, of course, my native tongue. And I said, tell me the language, tell me the dream first, but you don't speak that. I said, I just want to hear it. And sure enough, there's, mm. what I, there's what was missing. I could not hear the music of the dream because I was getting a cognitive translation. And it was only when I heard the person tell me and I could feel the app. Yeah. And it's, ah, that, I said, now I need both pieces. You need to tell me. Interesting. In your language and then give me your translation. And I can work with that then. I think we're so afraid to talk about our differences. Yeah. It's, you're, we're being so careful. It's not politically correct, but we are different and that's okay. Yeah, sure. And then, and then that brings okay. into what if there are intelligent species in the universe that are visiting or will be visiting or some oh. say are already here? How are we right. going to relate? We can't even relate to differences here on this planet. That's right. Let, let's keep trying. Let's keep learning about that. Let's keep talking about that. Yeah, how do we learn languages? You know, think about those forests that you're talking about. There's a real intelligence in those forests. Mm. When you look at what they're capable of doing, it's pretty awesome. And you start to think about that, and it's like there's a an anthropologist in Latin America, Eduardo Cohn, who wrote a book called How Forests Think. How it's Forests really Think. Think, yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting because it brings us into these questions about uh, and, and here again, I would say indigenous peoples around the world, first peoples, have tended to have more of a consciousness that evolved and developed in, in nature in that way. And they have much more of a sensibility about how to listen to and how to be in dialogue with that. I mean, some of it, it looks a little bit like active imagination. The, the plant speaks to them often in a personified form. But beyond that, beyond the kind mm -hmm. of... Uh, you know, sort of Western imagination constructions. I think there are other ways of, of, of sensing and being in the world with these other organisms of the planet that can be communicative. And how might we foster better pathways for communication and, and understanding? Wonderful. Those are the altered states. <laughs> yeah. Well, Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate sure. it. And uh, there will be links to everything uh, that I can find on you on the internet in the show notes for this episode. And uh, if I don't know if you had any parting words for us before I wrap up. No, just, just thank you for what you're doing. I, I think having a chance to get some of these ideas out and talk with people to, it's for me more about beginning dialogues. It's, mm. it's really entering into conversations. It's, it's, I find myself still seeking uh, and looking and, and the more um, I feel I can connect with others uh, and listen to them. I, I'm interested when I go to different parts of the country uh, in the U.S. and just listen to audiences. They have different experiences around these realms. Um, how important it is to gather up that collective voice. Well, thank you so much for the work you do. We really appreciate your time today. Okay. Well, thank you.
Please visit the website, speakingofyoung.com for more information on everything discussed in this episode and to access all of our previous episodes available to stream or to download for free. Speaking of Young is also available on YouTube podcasts, which you can access by subscribing to our channel, Jungian Laura. It's free. Just click the subscribe button below. This podcast is made possible by the revolutionary new dream tracking app, Temenos Dream. Discover the hidden meaning of your dreams using symbolism, literature, and mythology. Use the built-in AI illustrator and dream interpreter and share your dreams with others, all within the app. Download it by clicking on the link on the episode page or in the description box below and set up a free account today. I created Speaking of Jung over eight years ago as a free podcast. All of our content is still free to access, but it is not free to produce. Please visit the support page on our website at speakingofjung.com support to learn more about the myriad ways you can now help keep this podcast going. So with special thanks to Gus Swick, George Hoganson, Roderick Main, and Beverly Zabriskie, I am Laura London and you've been watching a very special video edition of Speaking of Young.